So this morning we've reached the middle point in the letters to the seven churches. We've covered three. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at the one today, and then there'll be three others uh, to look at it in the next two weeks. So this letter is to the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance that you are doing and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And now what's interesting is from, from a historical perspective, from the perspective of the world, in the first century, Thyatira was the least important town, is the least important uh, city, but it's given the longest letter. And so it's one of the things that I, think, I do think is worth reminding ourselves of sometimes. Uh, we seem to be far more impressed by place than God is. You know, God seems to care about people. And we seem to care about masses of people and, and large structures, as if somehow, you know, the more people, the more important. I'm not, I'm not convinced God always sees it that way. Uh, you, you look at Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, not living in Jerusalem, living in some cultural backwater, where the, the, the Son of God incarnate, born in this, you know, in Bethlehem, and living, growing up in Nazareth. We need to... We just recognize that you know our our metrics are not always right. We'd write a you know a longer letter to to Toronto than we would to a small town, but but God uh, Christ does not reveal Himself that way. Uh, he He speaks to His people as they need uh, as they need to hear. He gives the message that they need, regardless of whether there's many or a few. God is all the time in the world for all of His children. These are the words of the Son of God. Now, the phrase Son of God is only used here in the book of Revelation. What's fascinating is at the end of this letter, uh, you will recall that he mentions, uh, verse 27, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And Psalm chapter 2 is about the installation of the king 
who in Jerusalem, all the nations are raging against God, but God is his anointed king ruling in his holy city, and that anointed king is his son. You are my son. Today I become your father. Adopting the king as his own. Jesus is the son of God in, in the highest sense. Functionally, ontologically, we, we know this. But here, the only time in Revelation he's called the Son of God, and, and the Psalm 2 quote will be about, it's a context of, of sonship. So it's probably a particular designation to tie that in. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this is another one of those elements from that inaugural vision, of course, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. The feet like burnished bronze, glowing, powerful. Interestingly enough, bronze was one of Thyatira's major uh, commodities. So the town, Thyatira, had lots of had lots of workmen, lots of trade guilds, and so they, they were uh, they they were quite a manufacturer of bronze. Even though they weren't a, a massive city, they sort of they had some specializations. Bronze was one of them, and so Jesus is the one who's sort of like bronze on fire. And his eyes are like blazing fire. He sees through all the nonsense. He, he sees through all the propaganda. Uh, he, he sees right into your heart. He knows who you are. He knows what you do. He knows what's inside of you. His, his eyes are piercing. They see through you. That's why, verse 19, I know your deeds. Now, interesting enough, you'll notice uh, as you work through this book, Jesus keeps saying that. You know, he, he keeps telling people, listen, I know about you. you know, I, I know what you do well. I know what you fail to do. I know your deeds, your love and faith. Love and perseverance here. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your servants and perseverance. These are really remarkable things. These are the kinds of things you want to hear as a church. Jesus himself, whose eyes are like blazing fire, who sees through everything, who sees through the veneer, he looks at the church in Thyatira and he says, listen, I know you. I know your deeds. I know what you do and what motivates you. I know your love. Your love and faith. The greatest thing we can do is love God and love each other. And so for a church to be marked by genuine godly love is about the highest praise a church can receive. You love. I know your love. Jesus says that when I, when, I, when I set my piercing gaze on you, I see love. To be known as people of love, to love and be loved in a real and genuine way, that's known by Jesus. We love because he first loved us. You know, we are to love one another because God is love. Where there is real love, Jesus is pleased. 
and where there is real faith, where there is where there is trust and belief and commitment, that's where you have <coughs> that's where you have people who will be able to move forward even in difficult trials and circumstances. Love and faith. We have our Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. We trust. We wait and hope. But we don't wait to love. We love now. With all that we can, with all that we are. We love with all of our heart. We, we trust, we hope, we love. When Jesus looks at this church, he says, you love and you trust, you have faith. Not only that, but I know your service and perseverance. I, I know what you do. And this becomes a very obvious question. Is, well, what, what do we do as a church and as individuals? How are we serving the Lord? He says, I know your service. I know what you do. I know your perseverance. That means what they're doing is hard, but, but they're carrying on. I mean, earlier we've seen, you know, in, in Smyrna, you know, that, that, you, you, that God sets a time and there's suffering and there's persecution, but you, you keep going and you, you can be victorious and you can overcome even if it kills you. You overcome because the second death has no power over you. So you, you, you work hard, you, you do hard things, not because, again, you're, you're, you're not doing it because you're masochistic, but when God calls you to something hard, you do your best to do it. I know your service and your perseverance, you, you didn't sign up and then find out that, you know, it's, it's, it's not convenient to be involved in that ministry, you kept doing it. Because you're actually doing it out of love for others and for God that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is very, very high praise. Remember, the church in Ephesus was rebuked for sort of falling away from the love they had at first for the Lord. Now you have a group, they're being told, look, you're doing more now than you used to. And that's good because what they're doing is, again, motivated by faith and love. And so Jesus looks at this church and says, you know, in your history, in, in your life cycle, you're doing more now than you used to. You're more effective now than you used to be. And that's great. That's something, it doesn't mean more programs are happening. It doesn't mean there's just more noise and busyness, but it means in terms of effective service motivated by love and faith, they are more useful in the kingdom now than they were in the past. That is high praise. That's something which you should aim for individually and corporately. By faith and love, to serve and persevere. So when Jesus looks at you, he says, you are more useful now. You are doing more now than you did at first. Now, after that, again, that commendation is so high. <laughs> love and faith and service and perseverance and doing more now than you did at first. Like what? What else could anyone want? But don't forget, Jesus has the eyes of blazing fire. And so he looks at them and he says, nevertheless, I, I, 
as much as there's so much good, I do see some things that need correction, some things that are dangerous. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, we've seen this in, in, in a few of these letters already, this, this bringing together again of idolatry and sexual morality. We don't know the, exactly the details of all of this, but the general picture is very clear. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, notice here, even this false prophet who is luring people into sort of the cult of, of idolatry and sexual immorality, even that person is not beyond the patience and kindness of God as he gives her time to repent. I have given her time to repent, to turn away from her sin. But she is unwilling. This is something, again, to remember. This is part of the gospel. No matter what your sin, no matter what your failure, no matter what your shame, Jesus is patient and willing. This is Jesus speaking. I have given her time to repent. I have given you time to repent. So repent. If, if she doesn't repent, it's not because Jesus wasn't, didn't offer the opportunity for repentance. It's because she didn't want to. She wasn't willing because she has been unwilling, eventually the time to repent runs out. I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So God graciously gives her the opportunity to repent, but, that, but rejecting that opportunity to repent brings death. Her, her bed of pleasure becomes a bed of pain. And those who get their pleasure sort of uh, crassly with her suffer as well. This is, this is undoubtedly next when it says, I will strike her children dead. This is not literal. This is metaphorical. You know, that uh, those who, who are like her will receive the same kind of fate. These are not physical, literal children. So that, that metaphorical or, uh, lineage, those who are like her, will be the ones who experience these things. Now, why does Jesus do that? It's not because he's mean. It's so that the churches will know he actually searches hearts and minds. He will not allow this woman and this behavior to continue indefinitely. He will not allow his church to be destroyed by it. And as long as they tolerate what he hates, as long as they tolerate what is destructive, he will hold that against them. It is wrong. It is detrimental. All the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. He does, you know. He knows everything about you. And he's wise enough to discern all the things that you don't even know about yourself. He understands you completely. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This is taught in numerous places in, in the New Testament. Jesus is the judge and his judgments are real and they are based on truth and knowledge. 
I will judge you according to your deeds. We are saved by God's grace, but we are in fact judged for what we have done. That is, we give an account to God. Anyone with faith in Christ is saved for sure through his righteousness, but there is an accounting and a reckoning for our lives. Now, to the rest of you, that is, Interesting enough, Jesus realizes that in a church, there are some people who tolerate certain things and others who don't. There are some people who are off and some people who aren't. To the rest of you in Thyatira, this is what Jesus says. Do not hold to her teachings. Uh, sorry, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Right. Probably this idea of, of deep secrets, you know, these, these so-called deep secrets, there may be some sarcasm here. Uh, it may be that the people who are involved in these things are claiming, oh, listen, this is where the real knowledge is. Here's the real secret. Here's the real truth. Here's the deeper meaning. Jesus says, listen, you don't need to worry about all these secrets. You don't need to worry about all these all these people who have cracked the code. You don't need to realize to, to, to worry about all these people who figured out all the hidden meanings, all the enigmas. No, understand your limits. <laughs> I don't have any new secrets for you. Just hold on to what you've been given. You don't, you don't need to go scurrying around trying to find out all the hidden spiritual meanings everywhere. I've just given you the truth openly and honestly. Just hold on to that. That's more than enough. There's a lifetime just there in what God has revealed. You don't need to go looking around for the secrets of what he hasn't revealed, trying to, trying to figure it out. He hasn't left us with a mystery. He's given us truth. So only hold on to this. Now that only is big though. Hold on to it. Don't let go. I mean, we, we, in the last number of months, we were looking at Hebrews. And how often is, do we hear that in Hebrews? Don't let go. Hold on to it. You don't need to learn new secrets. You need to hold on to what you've already been given. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. By obedience to Christ's will... The saints are, victor are victorious and share in his rule. This is where you get this quotation from Psalm chapter 2. And again, we already mentioned this, but in Psalm chapter 2, it's well worth reading. The nations are raging in opposition against God and against his anointed king. But God isn't worried. He's not alarmed. He has installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. Nothing is going to dislodge the Davidic king. Nothing is going to dislodge Jesus. In fact, Jesus is given an iron scepter. Nothing's harder, nothing's stronger. And he can dash the nations to pieces like pottery. So they're nothing. You, you, you take a clay pot and, 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 and you, you, you smash it with an iron mace. You, you, you know, you're not worried about the iron scepter. You're worried about the pot. That's the one who gives us authority 
over the nations. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, just as I have received authority from my Father. That one will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery. The Father installs the Son, Psalm 2. The Son installs us to reign with him. Revelation 2. The power, the omnipotence, the authority and kingly rule and right of Jesus to reign is something that we share because we are united with him. But you have to be victorious. You have to do his will to the end to be given authority over the nations. I will also give that one the morning star. Now, as much as lots of people think they know everything about the book of Revelation, those who really actually with humility study the book realize that they don't know everything about the book. Um, our, our finest commentators, that is, that is the ones who really genuinely have the, have the best grasp of scripture, are the ones who are most likely to, to, to in certain in certain texts, point out options and then say, you know, I really don't know. One such scholar, Robert Mounts, says about the Morning Star, no completely satisfactory answer for the symbol has yet been offered. <laughs> no completely satisfactory answer for this symbol has yet been offered. And, and he's right. I mean, we, we can all speculate. We can all guess. We can all have our pet theories. We can all take the one that we like the most. I, I like this interpretation. Yeah, well, who cares? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what interpretations we like. It doesn't matter what makes sense to us. What does it actually mean? Well, the truth is we don't know. Some think that, and talk about a range of, uh, of options. I will also do that when the morning star. Some people think the morning star is Satan. Where, where he's given to us because we have victory over him. Something of the morning star is Venus, you know, the, the, the planet, the goddess, the Roman military symbol of power, that, that we conquer Rome, we conquer the nations. Others think that it's a reference to the Messiah. Remember Numbers 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. It's a collocation of, of star and scepter and Psalm 2 and... Uh, there's something that, that may evoke that, that Numbers 24-17 prophecy, uh, because that Numbers 24-17 prophecy is a messianic prophecy, just as Psalm 2 is. Some think that it's Jesus himself. Revelation 22-16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. And so something here, Jesus is basically saying, listen, if you're victorious, not only will you reign with me, I'll give you myself. And what else could you want besides that? To, to have a relationship with Jesus forever. Jesus will give us his heart. He will, he will give us his mind. Jesus gives us himself. We belong to him. He belongs to us. But note the, the very real difference there. You know, the, the first interpretation I mentioned is that this is Satan. The last one is that it's Jesus. That's pretty, that's pretty starkly different in terms of interpretation. Is the morning star the devil or Christ? Satan or Jesus? Whatever it is, 
it's good and you want it and God will make it clear when he gives it to you when you overcome. <laughs> See, there are some things that we just can't know because it hasn't happened yet. We know it will be good. We know that, that symbolically, richly, we're, we're either going to conquer evil and the devil in the world or we're going to be given the Messiah, Jesus himself. The symbol might mean either one of those two things and, and, and without making it go too, too crazy in terms of interpretation, because it probably has one reference. The reality is we conquer Satan precisely because we have Jesus. We, we rule over the nations because, precisely because we're united with Jesus, his rule, his authority. So, so whatever, it's good. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says this not just to the people in Thyatira. He says it to the churches, plural. Not just the seven churches. He says it to us. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I will also give that one the morning star. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I hold this against you. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. The commendation and encouragement brackets the, the, the things to clean up. See, see, one of the things that's beautiful is even when he's talking about, you know, there's going to be suffering. You know, if you don't repent, there's going to be, there's going to be trouble. He reminds him, yes, yes, but, but the fact that, that there can be trouble and suffering does not mean there isn't salvation. Just because some don't repent doesn't mean that none can repent. Just because some fail doesn't mean that some can't succeed. Just because, uh, just because some fall short doesn't mean that in God's grace, some won't make it all the way and be victorious by his power. And so, and so you, 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 you don't presume and you don't walk by arrogance, but you don't need to despair either. I'll do his will to the end. So Jesus did in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. That, that, that may be the hardest thing to pray and mean. Sometimes. We, we, we tend to want God's will to be done when, when, it's, when it's pleasure and blessings and happiness. Do my will to the end. May God help us to do that. The blessings and rewards are staggering. But we'll only ever make it by His grace and by His Spirit and by His truth. You don't need all the extra deep secrets. Just hold on to what He has given you. And go in the Spirit. And go in the power of the one who has full authority. Go with open ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And go in grace and peace.